My guest today is perhaps the most persecuted and unfairly characterised public intellectual alive today. Many of you know Dr Charles Murray from his extensive body of written work, which includes Losing Ground, Coming Apart and Human Diversity. But it was his book, The Bell Curve, Intelligence and Class Structure in American Life, which he wrote with Richard Ernstein and published in 1994, that led to Charles becoming perhaps the first victim of cancel culture as we know it today. Dr Murray's new book, Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America, will be the subject of our discussion today. In this interview, we're going to talk about what those two truths are, why they need to be confronted, and what will happen to America and the ideals she was founded on if they aren't. Dr. Murray, thanks very much for coming on the program. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, firstly, on, on a personal level, I'm sorry for what you've had to endure since publishing The Bell Curve. I know that it affected you quite deeply at the time, but I wonder, has the fact that the term Hitler is now getting thrown around like confetti these days brought you an element of peace? <laughs> I actually got an element of peace about 27, 20, 23 years ago. There were a couple of years after the bell curve came out when, when it bothered me, but it's been a long time since then. So I've, I now look upon the current cancel culture with a certain amusement uh, because it's gotten so much weirder than it was even back after the bell curve. Well, perhaps just briefly before we get moving for listeners that haven't read that or aren't familiar with that, uh, what was the thesis of the bell curve and in particular, what was the, I think it was only one paragraph that caused so much of that controversy. Yeah, the, the thesis of the bell curve is uh, suggested by the subtitle. The subtitle of the book is Intelligence and Class Structure in American Life. And Richard Hernstein, uh, an eminent professor at Harvard, was my co-author. And we said that the 20th century had seen a radical change in the nature of the, of the upper class that instead of being a socioeconomic elite, uh, that it was increasingly a cognitive elite because the 20th century gave this thing called IQ a monetary value far beyond anything that it had before for a far wider range of occupations. And that went along with changes in the university system that transformed uh, the nature of the members of that group that runs the country. So that's what the book was about. And you're accurate about that one paragraph. IQ, of course, has always been controversial for a variety of reasons, but especially because the different races have different mean scores, means and distributions. And uh, Nick, I have to get out of the way something that's extremely important right at the beginning, which is a difference in means does not separate people into different bins. There are overlapping distributions. Millions of blacks are smarter than millions of whites. Uh, but there is a difference in means, and that had always been controversial. Was it real? Was it effective bias in the test? So we had a chapter about race differences, ethnic differences, and IQ. And in the course of the chapter, we said, well, there's a huge dispute about the causes. 
And there are those who argue that it's environmental, those who say there may be a genetic component. And here are the, the lines of evidence that each side is using. And then the paragraph came at the end. At the end, and I, <laughs> I can probably quote it almost verbatim. We said, if we have convinced you that either the environmental or the genetic explanation has won out to the exclusion of the other, we have not done a good enough job of presenting one side or the other. We think it is highly likely that both genes and environment are involved in the black-white difference. And that was our sin, <laughs> saying we think probably both are involved. Because you see, it is absolutely obligatory to say there is no chance whatsoever that there is any genetic component to race differences in anything mm. except color of skin. And <laughs> We didn't. I actually thought that that chapter was going to be praised for giving such a non-hysterical, measured uh, account of a very uh, inflammatory topic. But I was wrong. So anyway, <laughs> if, if any of your listeners uh, have heard that the bell curve is a book that tries to demonstrate the genetic inferiority of blacks, I have just given you the entire the entire rant from Hernstein and Murray trying to prove the genetic inferiority of blacks. And I suppose I better specify I'm being sarcastic. Yes. No, you don't have to specify that to my audience. And I can almost guarantee that any audience members that I had had that would have thought that you were that would have long since stopped downloading this podcast. <laughs> Probably I think so. we, 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 you know, the tagline of this podcast is uh, excavating truth and beauty in a, in a brave new world, which for me is a euphemism of exploring dangerous topics uh, that shouldn't be dangerous. It's interesting to me that IQ is such a, a controversial topic. I mean, it, it's almost become like a material possession for some people it's it's become inseparable from the ego you know our worth is attached to it but as you've explained it's a very narrow bandwidth um, of high iq individuals that are um, worth something in that market in terms of there's a market value on high iq individuals but for the rest of us it's fairly insignificant. Yes, that's, a, that's well put. Uh, and actually, I, I probably should make a, a bigger point about that. We, we are around people of widely varying IQs every day, all day, but we really don't know how big the differences are because they don't surface in important ways. The, they, they, the things that make a difference, well, here's, here's the... Here's the obvious classic example. Uh, what could you do in 1920 if you had stratospheric mathematical skills, which also uh, involves what's called visual spatial skills? Well, you could teach math if you had a few social skills, so you could be a good teacher. You could be an, uh, you know, an actuarian, uh, an actuary, but there really weren't that many ways to make a living with that super duper power. What can you do now? You're going to get into a bidding war uh, between Google and and, uh, and uh, 
Apple on the West Coast versus the quant hedge funds in New York City to offer you the world in order to go for, to work for them because that stratospheric IQ is worth a lot of money as a sensational programmer and it's worth even more money as somebody who can do this incredibly arcane mathematical manipulations that the quant hedge funds use to pull down billions of dollars. So that's the, that's the most dramatic example, but it's true throughout the occupational structure, structure that if you're really, really smart, and we're talking a couple of percentage points of the people, uh, there's a big payoff for you. That should not affect daily life in much of any ways whatsoever. No, but... In a, in a first world or a Western world where in the past, especially in the past couple of decades, we've seen a incredible concentration of wealth amongst uh, industries that rely quite heavily on high IQ. These are tech companies and companies like Amazon. Um, yeah. Yes. Well, you take a look at the, you take a look at the, uh, the big three or whatever they are of uh, tech company, the Jeff Bezos with Amazon and Nicholas uh, Tesla, uh, not Tesla, I'm sorry, Elon Musk, who uh, Elon Musk and, uh, and Bill Gates, formerly Steve Jobs as well. I'm sure that on IQ tests, all of those are well into the top percentile of IQ. Uh, and they're also rich beyond anything that anybody has ever imagined before. Uh, including the Rockefellers and the Carnegies at their height. And, and yeah, at a lesser level, the the wealth that is in Silicon Valley, the wealth that is on Wall, Wall Street now at the people who aren't quite at those stratospheric levels is incredible. And it's conjoined with IQ, which has created problems that I discussed in a book called Coming Apart about a segregated new upper class. Yeah, and another dangerous element to that segregated upper class is that as these tech jobs uh, increase in terms of sucking the high IQ individuals towards the, the magnet, if you like, uh, let's take Amazon, for example. They're building a an infrastructure that is not really going to provide anything to the uh, average to lower IQ population because ultimately they're going to use those high IQ individuals to create mechanisms and systems that eliminate jobs that these people would have had, right? Yeah, there's, uh, although I take something of a, a different view of what's going on without automation than most people of, most people worry about those who have don't don't have very high IQs and do uh, manual labor, and those I don't think are the people who are going to get shut out of uh, jobs. That I think where you'll really hollow out the job market are jobs that required a certain amount of intellectual ability to make a certain number of, of decisions on the job that um, couldn't be done by computers. And there are lots of white collar jobs that are like that. You know, for things that people have to exercise judgment. Well, the improvements in artificial intelligence are not uh, automating away the jobs of electricians and plumbers. We still need electricians and plumbers. And in the United States, they make good money, sometimes really good money. And we are going to automate away through AI 
a lot of these jobs that paid maybe $100,000 a year in the United States require, you know, they have an IQ of around 105 maybe is an appropriate IQ. Those jobs are going to go away in, in vast numbers. And that's going to be a very different kind of crisis. What can't IQ tell us about a human being's individual worth? Oh, my. We can do an hour on that. We won't, but I will, I will just simply say, knowing a person's IQ score tells you very, very little about whether this is a person you, whose company you will enjoy, uh, whether it, he or she will be good-humored, will be affectionate, will be compassionate, generous. Go through all of the things that you look for in a human being that you cherish. And IQ is kind of at the bottom of the list. You can be confident if somebody has a high IQ <clears throat> that you have a high IQ that probably the other person will get your jokes. The other person may not laugh at them. Uh, there's, there's no, there's, that doesn't tell you much about any you know, depth of quality of your relationship. There are certain kinds of limited conversations that two high IQ people can have with each other, which they cannot have with somebody who's not as smart as they are. That's really not a big deal. It may be important in marriage, by the way. It may be more important in marriage. You want to, you want to choose uh, somebody on basis of things other than IQ. I tend to tell young people, what you want to do is find a partner in life who is your, your very best friend, whose company you just enjoy thoroughly, and who, with whom you can spend endless amounts of time, to whom you are also sexually attracted. You know, if you have those two things, you've got it made. But, but the, at the end of that, it's probably a good idea to marry someone that's in the same ballpark as you are intellectually, because uh, there can be misunderstandings if, if you're widely separated in that regard. Can you elaborate on that and perhaps give an example? Um, yeah, <clears throat> okay. Uh, let's take, I mean, I have, I have, uh, I do not have a sensational IQ, but I have the kind of IQ that's typical of people who write books like I write. Okay. So it's, it's, it's well above average. And so when I go in and talk to my wife about my work and what I've done that day, uh, suppose that she had no comprehension of what I was doing. That sort of cuts off an important source of seeking advice and, and letting, getting things off your chest. And you need somebody that can understand <clears throat> the aspects of your life that are important to you. And, uh, and so that's why I made the very wise decision to marry a woman who was smarter than I am because it's very, it's very relaxing. It's very <laughs> relaxing. You never, you never are talking to your, uh, your spouse partner and thinking, Oh, she doesn't really understand. <laughs> he understands all too well sometimes, but, but that's, that's generally a really good thing. I agree, Charles. I think, I think that it is important in that regard. And what's interesting is now that we start to, to talk about IQ, I hope that, people who are listening are starting to understand or at least are starting to experience a sort of demystification of it. Uh, for me in this book, and I was already uh, familiar and already accepted the data that you present, it's not a matter of anything but accepting what I believe rationally to understand as being true. 
you present what really is quite a simple set of uh, empirical statements. And as you said, these empirical statements demonstrate a difference in means, not a difference in the individual. I would say I'm of average intelligence. I know for a fact that there are, there are millions of black people who have a higher IQ than me, and there are probably millions who have a lower IQ, and there are probably millions who have the same IQ roughly. But I have to accept the irrefutable data, which demonstrates that as a group, which in my case is white European, my IQ is roughly nine points higher than Latin Americans. 13 points. The, 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 the mean of my group, sorry. Um, 13 points higher than African Americans and about 4.5 points lower than uh, East Asians. Now, it would be wrong of me both statistically and morally to believe that as an individual, my cognitive ability, my individual cognitive ability, is therefore higher than Latinos and Blacks. But nowhere in your research has that ever been implied. It's only when we define a person by his or her group identity and not as an individual that these empirical statements become controversial. Exactly. It is an artificially induced problem. Let me, let me uh, as, uh, this is true, by the way, I talk about two things in the book. One of them, the, the two truths in the title refer to differences in means and cognitive ability and the difference in uh, violent crime. And in both of those cases, the, at the individual level, there's very little relevance with IQ for the reasons you just said. It's even more pronounced for something like violent crime. The number of people who commit violent crimes of any race is minuscule. It's, it's, it's a very rare thing. Uh, but there is a lot of violent crime in the world, in the United States. And as, as groups, uh, in, in a black, low-income neighborhood, the crime rate is much, much higher. doesn't mean that people who live in those neighborhoods are mostly criminals. On the contrary, tiny fraction of them are, are criminals. But there are social consequences that... You have, to you have to recognize in understanding why policing uh, has problems in the black community that it doesn't have in affluent white communities. You have to understand the reasons that Google doesn't have as many black senior managers as, uh, as some people would like to see. And in both of those cases, the social consequences need to be recognized so that we don't get stuck in this extremely misleading narrative of systemic racism. Uh, Nick, I don't know whether you're in the United States or in the UK, uh, uh, where you're based. Or where are you based? I'm based in Australia. Boy, I blew that one, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. In Australia. I have been to Australia many times and love the place, even though I apparently can't recognize an Australian accent versus a, a UK accent. Uh, I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> well, yes, as well, you might. But in the United States, um, the systemic racism narrative has just taken over big time. And it is being reinforced by 
a uniform voice in our major outlets, Washington Post and the uh, New York Times, the major television networks, the Wall Street Journal to a lesser extent, but to some extent, are all accepting without complicating the story, the narrative that the reason we have disparities in the labor market uh, and in policing and so forth is entirely due to systemic racism. And my position is, are there races left in America? Sure there are. Is racism still a factor in life in America? Yes, it is. Uh, is this country systemically racist? It's not even close. Uh, I, I will, I'm quite chauvinistic in this regard. Very few other countries, like I'm not sure any, have had a multiracial society that has posed as many challenges uh, as, as, as the United States has had to deal with. And we've dealt with them pretty well. We've made lots of mistakes. We made the huge mistake of slavery at the beginning, and we've had lots of failings since, but we've made a lot of progress. And what's happening now, the reason I wrote the book, is that we are now told that we have to throw away the American ideal of treating people as individuals and instead start treating people as groups as a matter of social justice. And I consider that to be toxic. It's extremely toxic, and unfortunately, we have the same thing uh, happening here. Uh, and I actually would go one step further and say that it's repugnant. I think the second truth in your book, which we're discussing now in terms of violent crime, is of far greater significance than the first, because although the first is important, I see that this truth is the only uh, bona fide antidote to that repugnant notion. The reason it's bad is not the usual run-of-the-mill political difference. It's not political correctness as it's been known for the last 30 years. It's something completely different in, in terms of anything I've experienced in my life, and I'm 78 years old. Uh, and it is an existential threat to what has made the United States special. The, the uh, words of the independence, uh, Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with rights, etc. And the innate equality of human dignity that was expressed in that boiled down to something that <clears throat> drew immigrants to America in the millions in the 19th and 20th century, which is if you come to America, you will be judged on who you are. You won't be judged by your religion or who your parents were or what language you speak or the rest of that. You will go as far as your talent and hard work will take you. And even though uh, we, we certainly had a less than perfect record on that, we did, a, we did pretty well. And it was a place where people could, could make their lives, where they would be treated as individuals. And the whole system of government was predicated on that. If we start saying, no, actually, here's the story, that people must be treated as groups for these admirable reasons involving past injustices, what that really boils down to, Nick, is that when you get power, it's okay to, to pass laws and to create programs and benefits and incentives that apply to one ethnic population and not to another. 
And it seems innocuous at the beginning. It seemed innocuous at the beginning in the United States, but it, it has a variety of terrible effects, ones that nobody wants to talk about, such as, for example, if you're in the United States and in a workplace and uh, a new coworker shows up and that coworker is a Latin American, every white in the workplace has the thought go through their mind, which they probably will not say out loud to anybody. I wonder if this is an affirmative action hire, uh, which is a dreadful burden to put on the new hire that everybody expects that, but it also says something uh, important about you, you are artificially creating ethnic differences within the workplace that perpetuate the differences in the general population, and you don't need to do that. If you can successfully treat people as individuals, give everybody a fair shake, uh, regardless of race, color, or creed, you'll end up with, with workplaces that have blacks and Latinos and whites and Asians in the United States who are all equally competent. But if you have affirmative action, that doesn't happen. And the, the way that, that, that perpetuates and magnifies and exasperates uh, racial tensions can hardly be exaggerated. Mm. And it also places doubt on the individual themselves' ability. You know, did I get this because I'm black, or did I get this because I'm adding value to this company? Or yes, I, you know, I think I think it's especially cruel uh, in higher education mm. in the United States. What, because what happens is every university wants to have enough African-American, enough Latino uh, members of their incoming classes. This is really important to them. The problem is that the most selective schools, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, things like that, are also the most attractive to the very brightest African-American and Latino students. And so they they are offered admission to them and they accept, obviously. The problem is that because of the differences in the distributions, those, those differences in means get magnified. Sorry for the jargon here. They get magnified at the tail of the distribution, which is to say a modest difference in means produces much greater differences in the proportions of people who have IQs of 140 or 145. <clears throat> so, since the schools can't get enough, in quotation marks, African-American students who are fully competitive with the whites and Asians, they dig deeper into the pool. Well, that means that those people are not available for the next tier of schools. So here's the, here's the bottom line. Let's say you have an African-American 18-year-old who really wants to become an engineer. And not only that, he's plenty smart enough to become an engineer. He can become a good engineer. Uh, Let's say he has an IQ of 125. That's real smart. And you can be a real good engineer with that kind of talent. But that kid ends up being sent to MIT or to Caltech, where the average IQ of the rest of the students is closer to 145. And that's a big difference. So it's not that he couldn't be a good engineer, but it is demoralizing to have always seen yourself, rightly, as being a smart kid, and all at once you're thrown into this environment where you're in the bottom 5% of the class. And so there's a high dropout rates, there's high demoralization, and he doesn't end up 
going to another college and becoming a good engineer at another good college, a lot of times their potential is ruined. Now, Nick, I'm going to interrupt myself here. It is really hard to not sound patronizing to be a white guy trying to tell black people, you really shouldn't want affirmative action because it's hurting you. I understand that. I don't know how to get around that. I am saying as a statement of fact, it has wreaked enormous harm on African-Americans and to a lesser extent on Latinos. I would say that you don't have to worry about getting around it or thinking about getting around it because the essence of what we're getting into here is that society needs to move back to a position or towards a position where we see people as individuals. Mm -hmm. Therefore, your opinion is as valid as a black intellectual's opinion on problems in the white community because race is removed, it's the power of the argument and the thought. But I, I understand your, your reservations, especially considering how turbulent things are. And look, you've experienced that turbulence quite a lot. Maybe never in your wildest dreams after the initial backlash from Bell Curve could you have imagined or predicted what would have happened at, at Middlebury. You know, I, I, I guess I could have predicted, I could have predicted, predicted in 1995 because some, some of the experiences at the universities then they didn't go quite that far, but it was, as I looked around the room, I kind of wondered if they might. But then it sort of disappeared for so long. And to reemerge so suddenly in 2016, 2017, I don't think it had anything to do with me personally, actually. I think that I was a recognized figure that's identified with the right, and that as of the election of Donald Trump, anybody who was identified with that was an object of an enormous amount of anger on elite uh, campuses in the United States. Mm. But it has gotten pretty bad, so that nobody on the right really speaks at campuses anymore. The funny thing is that these, these are very expensive schools. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, these are children of elites. Yes. There's a there's a real um, there's a real disillusionment going on, uh, and I think that um, a lot of it does have to come down to uh, the American creed, which I think is actually uh, a blueprint that was then used in certain Western countries. Certainly, parts of it had been used, but I think what the most important word in the sentence that you read. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think that the most important word in that is creator. And the reason I think that is because without God being within the United States, a lot of those subsequent unalienable rights do disappear. What do you think about that? Well, I want to augment that. I, I agree with you, but, but something else that I have been thinking about recently is there is one huge advantage of being a good Christian, uh, trying to be a good Christian, and that is it is part of your theology that in God's eyes, uh, we're all sinners, we're all fallen, we're all, and the notion that if the Christian God values 
one person more than another because they have an IQ 20 points higher is absurd. <laughs> that's, that, that is utterly alien to the Christian God. And, and so if you are a good Christian, you have a built-in humility. You should, if you're a good one, you have a built-in humility where you do not see yourself as being a better human being than another person because you're smarter than they are. Yes. There are way too many members of the elite who have confused having a high IQ with uh, being a better person than people with low IQs. It was actually something that was anticipated with uncanny prescience by Michael Young, the British writer who wrote The Rise of the Meritocracy. Are you familiar with that book? I am, but I haven't read it. It's, uh, I, I became more familiar with it recently and was gobsmacked by how, how accurately it predicted what would happen. He made the point that in Britain in the 1950s, he was writing it as if he were a historian writing in, eight, in 2033, looking back at the last 70, 80 years. And, and he said, you know, in, the, in Britain in the 1950s, the class system was such that the people who were on top were fully aware that they were on top because they were born to the right families. And that's how they got in their plummy positions and good salaries and the rest of that. And the sober, the common workers were also aware of that. And they could legitimately say to themselves, no, I'm not on Trump, but it's not my fault. Uh, mm. I've never had the chance. And he then envisions a rise of the meritocracy in Britain. And he says, you know what? Now the, the, the class hostility is worse than it was in the 1950s. And the reason is the people on top now think they deserve it. Mm. They now think, well, they, yes, they have all these high positions, but it's their merit that got them there. And the problem with that is, with the importance of IQ goes another empirical fact, which is none of us earn our own IQ. Uh, it doesn't make any difference whether it's the 50 or 60% that's genetic or the 40 or 50% that's environmental, in neither case is it an environment that we were able to manipulate nor genes that we were able to manipulate. It is a pure gift. And people who have uh, stratospheric IQ should be on their knees every night thanking whatever creator they want to imagine for their incredible luck. Uh, and what we have in the United States now is a very arrogant new upper class that feels like they deserve what they've gotten and that people who are on the bottom, if they're whites, are kind of worthless. If there are people on the bottom who are people of color, naturally they think that's not their fault, it's because of racism they've been held down, but they look upon their fellow white people as uh, inferior. That's right. They're prideful of their intelligence which pushes them away from humility and i think the net result of that is um obviously a lack of compassion but also a lack of wisdom yes uh but it's also with the isolation is a lack of knowledge so that you have increasingly in the united states the people who end up at the elite colleges were born into upper middle class families uh, went to really good uh, elementary and secondary schools, often private, uh, where the dumbest person in the class probably had an IQ of 105. 
And uh, then they go to these selective colleges where everybody's smart. Then they move in these professions and these suburbs and communities where everybody's smart and, and affluent. And the degree of ignorance that a lot of them have about the rest of America is just astonishing. Mm. It wouldn't be so bad if um, they weren't so completely oblivious to their ignorance. And I think we saw that quite clearly with Hillary Clinton's campaign. Classic. I want to get back just quickly onto something, which is the idea of, of sin. I think what I find interesting is that within the elites who pride themselves on intellect, there's an absence of acknowledging sin, acknowledging that this is something that is a part of human nature. It's not surprising to me then that they're trying to, all these kids that you saw, you know, screaming at you, I, I would suspect that none of them knew your name. They're all looking for somewhere to repent and they don't know it. They're finding this in things like Black Lives Matter and Antifa and, to a, to a lesser extent, global warming. Yes, the, 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 the mea culpas uh, among them in the, it, it bears a real resemblance <laughs> to seeking forgiveness for sin. The problem is that they are they're not seeking forgiveness for what they should seek forgiveness for. They should they should be seeking forgiveness for being stuck up, self important, officious jerks. That's what they should be. Correct. Yeah, it's kind of like going into into the confession booth and berating <laughs> the priest for listening to their sins, <laughs> which they don't believe they've committed in the first place. Um, but I think that there is a lot of truth in. So I mean, you, towards the end of the book. You sort of um, you pose a, a couple of solutions, or at least some um, semi solutions. Semi solutions. You know, you say that there's a partial solution that's within our grasp, and I think you're. I'll let you articulate it, but ultimately, what you believe is that the the key here to rectifying the problems that we've discussed today is a return to the American creed. Yes, uh, and an avert and an averting a looming catastrophe, and the looming catastrophe, which is not getting talked about nearly as much as it should, consists of this: the systemic racism narrative uh, has been incredibly successful among America's white elites. They have. Uh, been been crying mea culpa, and they have been seeking forgiveness, and they are saying yes, whites are awful. But if you think about ordinary American whites, uh, middle class, working class, they work hard to keep uh, you know ends meeting and paying the mortgage and putting food on the table. They have not thought of themselves as racist. They haven't behaved as racist. They have blacks and Latinos in their workplaces. And they see themselves correctly as having behaved with friendship and respect toward them. And now they're being told that they are irredeemably racist and the cause of all the problems of everybody else. And a lot of them are quietly uh, not saying mea culpa. They're quietly saying, give me a break. Uh, you know, this is ridiculous. And I'm afraid 
that a lot of them already are saying to themselves, well, two can play at that game. If you guys want to play identity politics with being black or being Latino, hey, we can play identity politics with being white. And guess what? We're still 60% of the population and African-Americans, you're 13% of the population. Latinos, you're 19% of the population. Should we go at it in the basis of voting power? And to some degree, that's already happening. I think uh, I think the some of the gathering influence of white nationalism is a direct reflection of that, but it's nowhere near what it could become. And if it does become much more widespread, if, if whites start to say, we're going to play identity politics, then it's all over. And by it, I don't mean that America will lose its economic power or its military standing or anything like that. As Adam Smith famously said of England in the 1750s, there is a lot of ruin in a nation, and there's a lot of ruin left in the United States geopolitically. Mm. But as far as the United States being the land of the free and the home of the brave, uh, where people uh, can come together and be individuals and treat as individuals, that's gone. We're just another big power. And uh, so it, it's, it's strange, Nick. It's strange becoming the, to the sunset of your life. No, I'm in the sunset of my life. And uh, saying to yourself, I've never seen anything like this before. This is qualitatively worse than any crisis that I have lived through. And I lived through the late 1960s, early 1970s in the United States, which are pretty bad. Um, it's it's really scary, and so that's that's why we have to return. We have to do everything we can. Anybody who has a platform to try to turn the nation around and say, "Let's grasp on to what made us made us special," and that's what I'm really saying in the last part of the book. Since it's not politically feasible to get rid of affirmative action, which would solve a huge amount of the problem, uh, but that's not politically feasible. At least we can say the ideal remains a colorblind society. The ideal remains treating people as individuals. Right now, the reigning narrative said say that. But I, I suspect that when you walk down the street and you know, you're, you're in a bar and you have a conversation with the average person, I think you'd find that most people don't really believe in this sort of thing, critical race, or at least they have a very superficial belief in it that would melt away quite quickly over a beer or two. But I think the, the big problem is, you mentioned people need to use the platform. I think the platform itself is the problem here. And this is a kind of global media machine that we've never seen before. And this thing is, it's powerful. It can disseminate mass amounts of information globally with the click of the finger using horrific imagery like in the george floyd case and that imagery can uh can make people believe things that simply are not true yep i think that in the united states if you could get an honest poll and getting to people to talk honestly about race in the united states is uh like pulling teeth these days. But I'm willing to bet that 80, 90% of African-Americans, 89% of Latinos, and 80, 90% of whites still believe that, that we should be striving for a colorblind society 
where we treat people as individuals. I, I agree with you when you said you, you think it's 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 not that it's, the critical race theory is not that widely accepted. I think you're absolutely right. The problem is nobody will say that out loud, and uh, including this is very interesting, very interesting phenomenon in the United States. The heads of of many of the big media uh, entities in the United States still believe this. They are terrified of their younger staffs. What's happened here, I don't know if it's happened in Australia, is that you have these 20-somethings who are junior members in terms of their, their, their jobs, but they're acting kind of like Mao's Red Guards back in the 1960s, creating a, a peer pressure and atmosphere within the newsroom uh, or within uh, uh, the, the, the magazines, precincts or whatever, which promulgates this, this narrative and the orthodoxy, and you argue with that at your peril. So we've seen, because of the pressure of the, what I will call the Red Guards, we saw the firing of one of the finest editorial directors in the United States, James Bennett, uh, the, uh, the removal or the forced resignation of Andrew Sullivan, of a very well-known public intellectual here, and a variety of other people. And so you've got to have some, the solution has to be that people both in authority and just ordinary people start saying again, hey, I think that the United States uh, should be a colorblind society. I think that's good. I think treating people as individuals is good. I think treating people as groups is bad. And get them to say it out loud so that they know that they have allies out there. Right now, it's a classic case of a big megaphone drowning out everybody else. It is. And that megaphone is something that had never been challenged. For me, one thing I think that was very important that had never been done before, and I feel that this could only have been achieved by someone that had the, <laughs> the caustic and sort of egomaniac personality of Trump. He's the only person that, that's essentially put his hand on that megaphone. He didn't go out there and say, blacks are your enemies, whites are your enemies, Latinos. But he did say time and time again that the media is the enemy of the American people. Now, that's a fairly loaded statement. But I think that there is an element of truth to that. Because without the media... I don't see critical race theory or any of this stuff getting off the ground. If, you know, if people were not so hypersensitive, uh, Kendi's book on critical race theory, people would make jokes about it because this is not a rigorously constructed argument. It would have never gone much of anywhere. But we live in a time where it matters very little what you say. It matters how people uh, characterize your message. And the characterization of the message is this is a brilliant, insightful take on, on these underlying realities that whites have been too frightened uh, to, to confront. And uh, I don't know how you... I, I don't, uh, look, in a lot of things, it's the listeners are saying Murray seems to be wandering all over the map and not very confident about any of these solutions. Yeah, that's exactly right. Basically, this is a creed de coeur. Uh, it's, uh, uh, 
uh, I'm saying, folks, please, please, we got to wake up because disaster looms. You like to believe that a fever burns itself out, uh, but I think in this case, it's going to take a lot of voices to try to make that happen. Yeah, and I guess we just have to believe in the voice of um, of truth and reason. That's sort of where I sit with it. Your kind of partial solution that is within grasp. I think the only thing I would add to that is the solution within the American creed is that God, the Christian God, needs to come back into the hearts of enough Americans that that becomes the majority. Uh, not simply for my place as a Catholic, but, and, and mind you, a Catholic who used to be atheist. So I've been on both sides of this coin. But because it's empirically shown that it gives fruits to society. And it's been the cornerstone of a lot of the, the American culture. Uh, it's, you know, this is one, a very difficult thing to talk about because you can say American culture is deeply, uh, it's not just Christian, in many ways, it's deeply Protestant in addition to being Christian. And that has all sorts of reflections and in institutions and uh, values and priorities and so forth that transcend uh, the, 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 their origins. But you can't, if you try to remake America without understanding that heritage and honoring that heritage, you are going to be doing what Chesterfield, uh, Chesterton said everybody should not do, which is tearing down fences without asking first why they're there. And a lot of the structures in America are there because of, of uh, the, the Christian tradition that founded the United States. That doesn't mean that we need to become a, Freedom religion is one of is the, the very first of the uh, freedoms in the American Bill of Rights, and I don't want that to be changed in the slightest. But it, uh, understanding the full force of the heritages of our society is, is a big deal, and we've done a very bad job of that. I would agree that the yeah the fences are there. That perhaps they just need a they need a paint job. <laughs> in a few cases, I think probably they need a little dry rot to cut away. Uh, Dr. Murray, it was fantastic talking to you. Um, there's a lot more that we could have covered, but maybe down the track we'll do this again. I'm sure my listeners will really enjoy this conversation. So I thank you for that. Thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation, as I expected I would. Bye now. If you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Charles Murray, be sure to follow and subscribe to The Modern Conservative on iTunes, Spotify, and now Audible. You can also find video content on The Modern Conservative YouTube page. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at NICJournalist. That's Nick Journalist.